Welcome to the second part of the Yorkshire Ripper, a British horror story. It's 7.45 p.m. on the 2nd of November, 1977, two years after the first known Ripper attack. Seated at a table, Sutcliffe and his wife Sonia found themselves in the midst of an interview as two police officers began their questioning. Mr. Sutcliffe, where were you on the night of the 1st of October? Asks one of the officers while taking out a notepad and a pen from his jacket. I was at home with my wife, he replies. Is that true? The other detective asks Sonia. Yes, we had dinner together that night. Then we went to bed. Sonia says. Sutcliffe was then asked about the date when the killer had returned to the body but he had a solid alibi. Him and his wife had been having a housewarming party, and friends and family present at the party can vouch for him. When asked about the £5 note, Sutcliffe could not produce any £5 notes that he had received in his pay packet a month earlier on September 29th. The interview lasted for only 15 minutes as the police officers were in a hurry to conduct as many interviews as possible. Having found nothing to raise their suspicions, like thousands of other routine inquiries involving the £5 note, the officers filed a five-paragraph report stating Sutcliffe had denied visiting sex workers and that his wife had provided a general alibi for the night of the murder. Not connected was the conclusion drawn in regards to Jean Jordan's murder. Six days after the first interview, Sutcliffe was questioned again about a five-pound note by two different policemen. Sutcliffe and his wife, Sonia, reiterated the same accounts they had shared with the previous police officers. Additionally, they consented to a search of their residence during which no incriminating evidence was discovered. Continuing their investigation into Sutcliffe's statement regarding the housewarming party of the 9th of October, the police visited Sutcliffe's mother, Mrs. Kathleen Sutcliffe. She confirmed that she had indeed been at her son's house that evening. Kathleen continued to say that Sutcliffe had driven her and her husband back to their house after the housewarming party. Unbeknownst to both his mother and the police, after Sutcliffe dropped off his mother around midnight, he continued on to Manchester. There, he searched Jean's body in an attempt to locate the five-pound note, but he was unsuccessful in finding it. He was so mad that he started mutilating the dead body in a fit of rage. Despite months of thorough investigations into the origins of the five-pound note, the efforts yielded nothing substantial. Investigators were left frustrated, having gathered a crucial clue, but unable to trace the actual firm or individual to whom the note had been issued. On the 14th of December, Sutcliffe assaulted Marilyn Moore, a 25-year-old sex worker on a derelict land in Scott Hall, Leeds. Sutcliffe lost his balance while attempting to strike Marilyn with a hammer, allowing her to escape with severe head injuries, but still alive. Tire tracks discovered at the scene 
matched those from the Irene Richardson murder. Marilyn was able to describe her attacker, and the composite sketch was made. The resulting composite image was consistent with other survivors' descriptions of the killer and closely resembled Sutcliffe. The photo fit of Marilyn's attacker was placed on a wall of every police station in the UK. The detectives were confident that they would catch the killer soon. They knew he was a white male, around 30 years old, with dark hair, brown eyes, and he had a beard. Marilyn also provided a detailed account of Sutcliffe's car, frequently seen in red light areas. Subsequently, Sutcliffe was interviewed once more, but again ruled out. In January 1978, having exhausted all credible leads, the West Yorkshire police detectives suspended the search for the person who received the £5 note. That month, the Ripper struck once again. On the 21st of January 1978, Sutcliffe took the life of Yvonne Ann Pearson, a 21-year-old sex worker from Bradford. Her body was found two months after the attack. On the evening of her murder, Yvonne left her two young children with a nanny. She went to a local pub and around 9.30pm, she told a friend she would leave to earn some money. Yvonne was scheduled to appear in court five days later, facing charges of soliciting. This wouldn't be her first conviction for such an offence, and it was likely she would go to prison this time. That evening, Sutcliffe was cruising along Lum Lane, when he narrowly avoided getting into an accident when a car reversed out of a side street in front of him, the driver obviously not looking where he was going. Breaking abruptly, he was taken aback when a blonde-haired woman tapped on the front passenger window and proceeded to open the door. He asked her where she appeared from, and she replied, Just good timing. You can put it down to faith. They settled on a fee of five pounds and promptly headed towards a vacant piece of land. After they arrived at the location, they got out of the car and soon after, Sutcliffe hit her over the head several times with a heavy hammer, which he had kept under his car seat. Shortly after the attack started, another vehicle arrived and parked next to his. Sutcliffe moved Yvonne's body beside an old sofa and, in a bid to stop her from making any noise, he put his hands over her mouth and nose. After the car parked next to Sutcliffe's drove away, he jumped on her chest a few times. He then covered Yvonne's body with the old sofa. Yvonne Pearson was reported as missing the following Monday. The police believed that she might have intentionally disappeared to evade her upcoming court hearing. Authorities searched abandoned locations and reached out to other police forces, yet no information about her whereabouts was found. Ten days after Yvonne's murder, on the 31st of January, Sutcliffe took the life of Elena Ritka, an 18-year-old sex worker 
from Huddersfield. He struck her on the head five times as she exited his vehicle, then removed most of her clothing and stabbed her in the chest. Three days later, her lifeless body was discovered beneath railway arches in Garrard's timber yard, the location to which Sutcliffe had driven her to. The police were desperate for any information the public could provide, but the sex workers, who potentially held crucial details about the serial killer, were reluctant to cooperate with law enforcement. By the end of January of 1978, there were more than 48,000 people interviewed in the case and 136,000 vehicles checked by the police. Despite multiple appeals to the media, the police received no new information about the Ripper. A reward of £30,000 was offered in exchange for new information. The West Yorkshire police were confident that someone would come forward because at that time £30,000 was a life-changing amount of money. Every piece of information the police received was written down and put into the files. The police gathered so many files that the floor of the incident room in the West Yorkshire police station had to be reinforced in fears that it would collapse due to its weight. On Easter Sunday, the 26th of March, 1978, a passerby walking in an area of wasteland saw an arm sticking out from under the old sofa. The police were called and they determined that the body belonged to Yvonne Pearson. The detectives believed she died soon after she disappeared, but there were several questions surrounding this particular murder. First, the police found it inconceivable that her body would not have been discovered earlier by someone with her arm sticking out so obviously, unless it had been moved by an animal or the killer himself. Second, a copy of the Daily Mirror dated the 21st of February, exactly one month after her murder, was discovered placed underneath one of her arms. There were also questions if this was the work of the Ripper or a copycat. The body suffered head trauma, but the coroner concluded the injuries had been caused by a boulder and not a hammer. There were no stab wounds on the body, but her clothing had been arranged in typical Ripper fashion, with her bra pulled above her breast and the rest of her attire pulled down. Initially dismissed by the police as a Ripper killing, it was later added to the list of murders and attacks. The detectives uncovered very little evidence at the crime scene due to the fact that the murder had occurred two months earlier. That month, tire track inquiry was abandoned after the police had checked more than 5 million vehicles for the tires that matched the ones found at several murder scenes. On the morning of the 17th of May, 1978, the body of 40-year-old sex worker Farrah Evelyn Millward was discovered on the grounds of the Manchester Royal Infirmary. The night before, at around 10pm, she told her boyfriend that she was going out to buy cigarettes. Shortly after she left her house, she was picked up by Sutcliffe. Upon exiting his car, Sutcliffe assaulted her with a hammer. Following her death, 
he dragged her body nearer to a pathway and proceeded to inflict numerous stab wounds with a knife. To the police, it looked like the Ripper was getting desperate for more publicity, leaving a body in plain sight near a large hospital. Not knowing what else to do to catch the killer, Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield from the West Yorkshire Police made a desperate plea to the media. Oldfield asked the Ripper to turn himself in. He said in part, In your own interest, it is now time for you to come forward and give yourself up. I'm anxious that we catch you before you have time to add another death to the appalling catalogue that you've already got to your credit. After this media appeal, Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield received a series of letters from someone claiming to be the killer. The reason why these letters were taken seriously by the police was the fact that the writer knew that the latest victim, Vera Evelyn, had undergone a series of recent surgeries at the Manchester Royal Infirmary. This information was known to the police, but had not been publicly disclosed at the time. The first letter addressed to Oldfield read in parts, Dear Sir, I am very sorry I cannot give you my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I have been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. Might write again later. I not sure lost one really deserved it. Horrors getting younger each time. Old slut. Next time, I hope. Huddersfield, never again. Too small. Close call last one. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. The police made the letters available to the public in hopes that someone might recognize the writing. The letters were sent for fingerprint analysis and DNA was extracted from the gum seal that had been licked by the sender. The DNA retrieved from the seal was identified as originating from a man with a type B blood. The detectives had recovered DNA from previous Ripper murder scenes and it was established that the killer was a type B blood secretor. In the 1970s, the process of DNA fingerprinting was in its infancy. At that time, any identification on blood and body fluids relied on blood grouping, but the results were not of much help. Almost 50% of the population have the blood group O. The next most common blood group is A, with almost 40% of the population sharing this group. B group consists of about 10% of the people, and group AB only 10%, and group AB only 3%. Even though men with the blood group B were accounting of only 6% of the population, over 55 million people lived in the UK in the 70s, so the chances of finding the killer with a blood group B were slim to say the least. On the 17th of June, 1979, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield received a cassette. On the tape, the individual introduced himself under the name of Jack and claimed responsibility for the Ripper murders to that point. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? 
The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown when I was disturbed. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. I'm not sure where. Maybe Manchester. I like it there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the Ripper. After a thorough analysis of the tape, the police began searching for a man with a Wearside accent, which linguistics narrowed down to the Castletown area of Sunderland. However, the lead yielded no results. After a year without any new Ripper murders, the residents in West Yorkshire became less anxious about the prospect of a new attack. Detectives speculated that the Ripper might have been apprehended by law enforcement in another part of the UK, possibly being police custody, or even deceased. However, the reality was that Sutcliffe did not target any new victims due to the heightened police presence in the red light areas and the fact that he had been interviewed by the police numerous times in connection to the killings. Despite these deterrents, Sutcliffe's inner urge to kill prevailed, and on the night of the 4th of April 1979, he found his next victim, walking alone in a dimly lit park in Halifax, West Yorkshire. Josephine Anne Whitaker, a 19-year-old clerk, was walking alone towards her house at around 11.40pm when Sutcliffe noticed her from his car. He quickly parked, stashed a hammer and a Phillips screwdriver into his pocket, and then proceeded to follow her. Within minutes, he caught up to her and engaged in conversation as they walked. When she wasn't paying attention, Sutcliffe hit Josephine from behind with his hammer and knocked her to the ground. He then proceeded to stab her over 30 times with a screwdriver. Josephine's body was discovered next day and it was soon determined by the police that the Ripper had attacked again. Once again, the Ripper's victim was not a sex worker reigniting fear and anxiety among the public. The West Yorkshire police were under immense pressure from the public, politicians and the media to solve the case. Channeling their efforts, they allocated over £1 million to nationwide advertising campaigns aiming to publicise the case and increase the chances of identifying the killer. In an attempt to reach a broad audience, the police visited every pub, bar and club across West Yorkshire playing the tapes to the partygoers. The tape was played in shopping malls, buses, on the radio and on TV daily. The campaigns made the Ripper tapes widely available to the public and the Ripper letters were printed and posted all around the country. But, unfortunately, the letters and the tape were a hoax. Immediately after West Yorkshire Police released a tape to the media, the FBI informed them that the creator of the tape was most certainly a hoaxer. 
After his analysis of the tape, profiling expert Robert Ressler from the FBI indicated that the man on the tape had nothing to do with the killings. The detectives from West Yorkshire Police dismissed the FBI's conclusions and continued to present the tape and letters to the public as certainly made by the Ripper himself. In 2005, more than 20 years after the case had started, through DNA taken from the envelopes, it would be determined that John Samuel Humble, an unemployed alcoholic and longtime resident of the Ford estate in Sunderland, was the man behind the Ripper letters and the tapes. He had no connection to the real Ripper and was later convicted and sentenced to eight years in prison for sending the hoax letters and tapes. On the night of the 2nd of September 1979, Bradford University student Barbara Janine Leach told her friends she was going out for a walk. A few hours later, when Barbara did not come back, she was reported missing by her friends. The 19-year-old's body was found the next day in the back garden of a home close to hers. She suffered a blow to the head with a hammer and was stabbed eight times. Barbara Janine Leach became the 11th victim of the Yorkshire Ripper. Unlike many of the Ripper's victims, Barbara's murder garnered widespread attention. Similar to Jane McDonald and Josephine Whittaker, Barbara was younger than most of the victims and was not a sex worker. This led to increased sympathy from the press. The heightened public attention and increased police presence on the streets seemed to discourage the killer from targeting only prostitutes, leading him to victimize any woman he could find. Sutcliffe was interviewed on at least two separate occasions in 1979. Despite matching several forensic clues and being among the last 300 names linked to the £5 note, he was not strongly suspected by the police. On the 26th of June, 1980, Sutcliffe was stopped while driving, tested positive for drink driving, and was subsequently arrested. While awaiting trial for his drink and driving offence that was scheduled for mid-January of 1981, he murdered 47-year-old civil servant Marguerite Walls on the night of the 20th of August, 1980. Marguerite left her office between 9.30pm and 10.30pm to walk to her home in Leeds. Sutcliffe noticed her walking alone and soon hit her with a hammer over the head. He continued to strike her while yelling filthy prostitute. Notably, Marguerite Walls was not a sex worker. However, Sutcliffe was so delusional that he regarded most women walking alone at night as sex workers. He removed almost every piece of clothing from her once she was dead, leaving just her tights on. He then partially covered the body with grass and leaves before he left. The body was found the next day and quickly tied to the Ripper killings. On the 24th of September, 1980, Sutcliffe attacked with a hammer a 34-year-old doctor from Singapore, Upadia Bandara, who was walking home after meeting her friends at the bar. Sutcliffe followed her into an alley in Headingley, Leeds, and when she wasn't paying attention, she was struck over the head. 
Sutcliffe was startled by a person walking by and fled the scene. Apadia suffered great injuries to her skull, but survived the attack. A month after, on the 25th of October, Maureen Lee, 21, an art student at Leeds University, was attacked by Sutcliffe in Chapel Town area when she was walking down a dark street to catch the bus home. As soon as the attack started, she began screaming in pain. A passing couple who heard her screams went into the alley to see what was happening. Sutcliffe hastily fled the scene upon realizing that people were approaching. While Maureen survived the attack, she suffered several injuries, including a puncture hole to the back of her skull, a fractured skull, a fractured cheekbone, a broken jaw, a severed spinal cord, and numerous scratches and bruises. On the night of the 5th of November, 1980, 16-year-old Theresa Sykes was assaulted by Sutcliffe in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire. Theresa just got out of her house and was walking towards a nearby shop when Sutcliffe struck her from behind. Theresa's boyfriend heard her screams and rushed out, causing the attacker to flee. Following the assault, she underwent brain surgery, but survived. On the night of the 17th of November, 1980, Jacqueline Hill, a 20-year-old student at Leeds University, was killed by Sutcliffe. While returning home to her student's hall of residence in Headingley, Leeds, Sutcliffe struck her on the head, subsequently undressed her and stabbed her multiple times in the chest and once in the eye with a screwdriver. Her body was discovered the next day on a stretch of wasteland a hundred yards from where she lived. A plaque honoring her was installed near where her body was found. It read, Sister, Daughter, Housemate, Friend, Fiancé, Gentle and Caring Person, Lovely, Kind Girl, Endearingly Silly Sense of Humor, Funny, Clever, English Student, Sunday School Teacher, Probation Service Volunteer, Brought Only Goodness to the World, she was everything people wanted their daughter to be, Silver Girl. The public outcry following Jacqueline's murder deeply impacted the police. The realization that the Ripper was now targeting women near universities and populated areas heightened public anxiety. There was an urgent need for the police to swiftly resolve the Ripper case. Marches and protests erupted all over the country. Women were furious at the police's incompetence in catching the killer. One woman argued to the media that because of one homicidal maniac, all women throughout the country are being terrorized. West Yorkshire police insisted in numerous media appeals that the only way they could protect the public was for the women to stay inside and not walk the streets at night. In some cases, even blaming the victims for the Ripper's killings. They failed to recognize that it was the police's responsibility to ensure the safety of every member of the public. Throughout this period, Sutcliffe was living his life as normal. He had a wife, a home and a stable job. His co-workers were making fun of him 
for being interrogated by the police nine times in connection to the Ripper killings and for his resemblance to the composite sketches made with the help of the victims. But none of his co-workers believes he had any involvement with the attacks. On the 2nd of January, 1981, Sutcliffe picked up a sex worker and was driving around Sheffield, South Yorkshire, when he was stopped by the police. Upon inspecting the license plate, the police officer recognized that it belonged to a different vehicle. Having false number plates was considered a criminal offense. Sutcliffe was taken to the police station, but soon after arriving, the officer saw a photofit image of the Ripper and realized that the man he had just arrested looked very similar to the image. Thinking that he might be onto something, the officer went back to where he found Sutcliffe's car and searched the nearby area. He soon found a knife, a hammer and a rope laying behind the bush. The officer was convinced that Sutcliffe was the Ripper. He rang his superiors and they soon came down to the station to ascertain the situation. Subsequently, the police obtained a search warrant for his home and brought his wife in for questioning. They were convinced they just caught the Ripper. The following day, the police made a public appeal where they announced that the Yorkshire Ripper had been caught. The newspapers were covered with pictures of the West Yorkshire Police's task force cheering up as they were announcing the arrest, along with messages of congratulations for the hard work they did. What the West Yorkshire Police failed to recognize was that the Ripper was caught purely by chance and not by good police work. On the 4th of January, the West Yorkshire Police announced that the name of the man they had in custody was Peter William Sutcliffe age 35, a lorry driver from Bradford. Following two days of intense interrogation, Sutcliffe confessed to being the Ripper. Over the next day, he calmly recounted his numerous assaults in detail. He later showed the detectives where he disposed of numerous weapons he used in the attacks. Thousands of furious members of the public gathered outside Dewsbury's courthouse, eagerly awaiting to catch a glimpse of the killer as he was brought inside for arraignment. As the murderer was escorted from the police van, his face covered by a blanket, the crowd erupted, shouting that justice would prevail. The following day, the media uncovered photos of Sutcliffe printing them on all front pages, leaving people surprised by his seemingly unremarkable appearance. Contrary to expectations, Sutcliffe lacked the stereotypical features associated with an evil appearance. He appeared entirely ordinary. A few weeks after Sutcliffe was arrested and confessed to the Ripper's attacks, he claimed that God had instructed him to commit the murders. The women I killed were filth. I was just cleaning up the place a bit, he told the police. During his trial, he entered a not guilty plea to 13 charges of murder, but pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. His defense was that he claimed to be the tool of God's will and that, while he was working as a gravedigger, he had heard the voice of God telling him 
to kill sex workers. Sutcliffe pleaded guilty to seven charges of attempted murder. Four psychiatrists had diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, and the prosecution was inclined to accept his plea following the diagnosis, but the judge presenting over the trial rejected the diminished responsibility plea and the expert testimonies of the psychiatrists, insisting that the case should be dealt with by a jury. Despite the efforts of his counsel, Sutcliffe was found guilty of murder on all counts and was sentenced to 20 concurrent sentences of life imprisonment. The jury dismissed the testimony of the four psychiatrists who asserted that Sutcliffe suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. This decision may have been influenced by a prison's officer's account who overheard Sutcliffe telling his wife that, by convincing people he was insane, he could potentially spend only 10 years in a mental institution. The judge presiding over the case stated that Sutcliffe was beyond redemption and hoped he would never leave prison. He proposed a minimum sentence of 30 years before parole consideration, implying that Sutcliffe would probably not be released until at least 2011. In July 2010, the High Court issued Sutcliffe with a whole life tariff meaning he was never to be released. West Yorkshire police were criticised for being inadequately prepared to handle an investigation of this magnitude. The Yorkshire Ripper case was one of the largest investigations by a British police force. Details about suspects were recorded on handwritten index cards, leading to challenges in both storing and retrieving the paperwork. The manual system's sheer size posed difficulties for officers in managing the information overload. Sutcliffe was interviewed nine times, but the police had all case-related information stored in paper format, making cross-referencing difficult. This challenge was further amplified by television appeals for information, resulting in the generation of thousands more documents. In a report of an official inquiry into the Ripper case, it was noted that the ineffectiveness of the major incident room was a serious handicap to the Ripper investigation, while it should have been the effective nerve center of the whole police operation. The backlog of unprocessed information resulted in the failure to connect vital pieces of related information. This serious fault in the central index system allowed Peter Sutcliffe to continually slip through the net. The same report concluded that the West Yorkshire Police had ignored advice from survivors of the Ripper's attacks, from several eminent specialists, from the FBI in the United States, from dialect analysts, and the police had used the hoax tape as a basis for exclusion rather than as a line of inquiry enabling Sutcliffe to evade scrutiny as he did not match the profile of the tape or letter sender. The West Yorkshire police committed several errors in their investigation, displaying a lack of foresight and strategic thinking that allowed the killer to continue his killing spree for five years. While in prison, Peter received an official diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, yet Efforts to transfer him to a secure psychiatric unit were blocked. Throughout the years, he was attacked by other inmates numerous times, leading to the loss of vision in his left eye. 
In March 1984, Sutcliffe was sent to the infamous Broadmoor Hospital because of his compromised mental health. Sutcliffe died at University Hospital of North Durham at the age of 74 on the 13th of November 2020. He had a number of underlying health problems, including obesity and diabetes. A private funeral ceremony was held, and Sutcliffe's body was cremated. The harrowing tale of the Yorkshire Ripper stands as a tragic chapter in British criminal history. The heinous attacks and murders committed by Peter Sutcliffe, claiming the lives of 13 innocent women, instilled fear across the nation for five long years. The Ripper's reign of terror not only left grieving families and shattered lives, but also exposed the inadequacies in the West Yorkshire Police's methods of investigation, emphasizing the need for a thorough and effective response in the face of such gruesome crimes. The legacy of the Yorkshire Ripper served as a haunting reminder of the collective responsibility to continuously refine and improve law enforcement strategies, ensuring a more vigilant and capable response to protect society from such atrocities in the future. Thank you for listening. Join us next time on Dark Hour Chronicles, where we will discuss the life and death of famous singer Selena Quintelia.